Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Priest of Copper Beach Financial Group. Listener, here's the thing. This is part two of a two-part series. You are not going to want to miss the first part of this. Um, If you're listening to this one first, please just go ahead and pause it. That's the beauty of a podcast. Go back and listen to the previous episode. The guests they have on the show today set up a, a beautiful foundation for what this podcast is going to be covering. I'm not going to introduce the guest to you, audience. Michael is going to do that. Um, this is just going to be an amazing podcast, so please buckle your seatbelt. This is this is going to be great. Michael, how are you? I am good, Eric. How are you? That was a, a great intro. I'm, I'm <laughs> as excited as you are. I think. I, I just I'm, I'm I was blown away by the last podcast. I just can't say enough about it. I am sharing it with everybody I know. Um, yeah, it, it was absolutely amazing. So, who did you bring back to the show? Well, we brought back Mr. Prajita Anand. Uh, Prajita, thank you so much for being uh, with us again on part two. I think, uh, like Eric said, you laid a great foundation, but hopefully we'll get into it a little bit more. Uh, But thank you so much for being Mm. a part of it again. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, John. Thank you, Michael. Such a pleasure to be back. Welcome back. Yeah. So I would echo what, Eric, you said. Please listen to part one, as I think it really will. Uh, obviously, give that foundation for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, and and a project that you get, did such a, a great job of illustrating what you do and your background mm-hmm. and some of the issues and and uh, I, I guess you could say problems now, particularly with in light of the pandemic, uh, some things that have been set in motion amongst young girls and and uh, relationship with their mothers and I would say even really teens in general that uh, mm-hmm. you're really addressing. And I think. Uh, taking head on uh, here, but um, so please go back and listen to part one. But at the end of the last episode, you mentioned uh, sort of four shifts that you really like to work with, uh, with the families that you work with. And so I was hoping we can get into a little bit of those four shifts. And mm-hmm. Eric, I know you had asked a question right at the end there as well, that I think a project you said would be in the first shift. So I want to make sure that we addressed that as well. So uh, again, thank you, Prajita, and and please let's get let's get going here with these four shifts. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Yep, I was also going to get started with that question. So, um, Eric, why don't you why don't you pose that question again? Because I think it's a great place to start. Sure, absolutely. Well, we had talked about how emotional anchors, when it comes to adults specifically, um, mm-hmm. it's great for goal setting. It's great for you know having something that's going to drive you and have an emotional tie to something that you want to do that helps mm-hmm. you with goals. But for teenagers, it, the emotions run so much deeper. And Michael, you had actually spoken about how a small amount of time, two years in a teenager's life is huge compared mm-hmm. to an adult, right? So those emotional times can create emotional anchors in a very negative way. When they see things, mm-hmm. you had spoken about Instagram, when they, when they feel like they're being judged by peers, by people they don't even know, um, by things that they've experienced in a very short amount of time, like the pandemic and lockdown and isolation, mm-hmm. Those can create emotional anchors that hold them back from flourishing. And I'm, my question mm-hmm. to you is, how do you help parents break the chains on those anchors to let their child rise above what they're experiencing or feeling at those moments to know that there's so much more out there for them? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that question. I think it's an important question. And the answer is, yeah, so um, 
as a public health scientist, you know, the work I do with my students is is rooted in robust evidence-based research. And to that end, yes, I've distilled the the changes that I help facilitate, um, you know, these older teens and young adults into four key shifts. So the first one speaks directly to this question, and I think they all do to certain degrees, but this one is really where we start. So shift one is a shift in control. So we want we want these young people to shift from uh, an external locus of control to an internal locus of control, where they go from victimhood to agency. Uh, because it is, again, it's a travesty that um, children with access to all the resources in the world feel like power, powerless, feel like they don't have any power. So um, so the, the, the thing, the shift that we want to see is, uh, you know, before that they're, they're, when, when I encounter them so in, this, in this case, the student I mentioned in the first podcast we did, um, I refer to her as Emma. That's not her real name. Um, when I met her, she felt really inadequate and felt like she was unable to be proactive in shaping her own destiny. She, she thought, like, I'm at the mercy of an unkind universe. So when I, when I was working with her, when I uh, first began working with her, she, she had several negative emotional anchors that she made something of. And I'll illustrate what I mean. So she was about to take the ACT. She was in her junior year. She was about to take the ACT in the uh, spring of her junior year. And it got canceled because of the pandemic. And then she rescheduled to take it for the fall. So the first time in the fall she took it, she had um, she wasn't she wasn't feeling very well. And so she it wasn't her best performance. She got the scores back. They weren't nearly as as uh, high as in her practice scores. Then the second time she uh, took it, um, she was about to take it in the in this fall of her senior year, she got COVID, so she couldn't take it. And then the third time she got it, it was as and the third time she was meant to take it, it was cancelled because of a, a resurgence in the in the in cases in New York. So that happened shortly before. Sorry, that happened shortly after. Um, being rejected for a selective class that she wanted to attend in school. Her parents, as I mentioned, are divorced uh, and none of her friends' parents are divorced. And then uh, after the ACT, she didn't get into her first choice college. And so these, she strung these things together and made them mean something about what was able to happen in her life. So she was like, this is the way she interpreted it. She was like, why does everything bad happen to me? There's nothing I can really do about my life. This is how it is and how it's always going to be. And um, and that narrative based on these emotional anchors, you can imagine, is very negative. And if it is left unchecked, uh, you know, I'm at the mercy of this capricious, unkind universe and like good things happen to some people, they're not going to happen to me, then that can create that can that can then make you unconsciously create a very negative life for yourself because language shapes reality. The way that you think about what's happening to you shapes your experience. So, okay, not saying that there aren't um, actual things that you don't have control over because I would say that those are the majority. The, the majority of what's happening in this world, uh, you don't have control over. You don't choose the circumstances of your birth. You don't choose, there's so many things you don't choose. For example, she did not choose the pandemic. She didn't choose the pandemic for the ACT to be canceled. So she, um, so the, the kind of shift that we want to see, right, is, is moving from this, in, this external locus of control. So like everything bad is happening to me and we want to move 
the shift that we want to see is one of agency. So through our work, Emma made this shift. So she began to trust her own intuitions. And then instead of seeking confirmation bias in a negative sense, she began to seek confirmation bias in a positive sense. Like, okay, what? let me tabulate all of the amazing things that are happening to me. Let me live in, um, in a place of gratitude. So the way that we undo those negative emotional anchors is that we, it, it actually involves a lot of CBT techniques. It's, it's actually very specific to the individual, but um, you, you reset the narrative and then, uh, and then you have to practice, you have to practice thinking in this altered way. And, uh, and then when, once that shift is made in that instance, um, she began in her case, she began realizing that actually her feelings weren't inevitable um, that she could alter her thoughts and reshape her feelings and choose how she responded. And one of the things that really resonated with her was, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Viktor Frankl and uh, read this, this, you know, life-altering book, Man's Search for Meaning. And, um, and so in that, you know, it, the, the point that I was trying to make to her, what the shift that we want her to experience is that we want her to realize and live in this truth that she can shape her own life to a certain extent, right? She can input has a bearing on output, but deeper still when she can't change her circumstances, like being unable to properly take the ACT, she can change her attitude to her circumstances. So these words of Viktor Frankl always resonate with me where he says that everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. Now, Viktor Frankl did this in one of the most extreme situations that any human being has ever had to face, right? The concentration camps of, at Auschwitz. Now, if he could make this observation and embody that way of being in that extreme circumstance, then that is proof positive that we can do it. We can do it in any circumstance. It is possible in any circumstance. And it's those, is that kind of shift that, um, that is possible and that we want to engender in these young adults, teens, and in fact, in all of us, right? So these aren't, it's not like she made the shift and there she was, right? It's that she made the shift and she realized that this, that this kind of shift was possible. So then when she later went to college and there had the separate set of issues she negotiated at college, this was a really important piece of how she negotiated how she thought about her own circumstances. So, so that's the first shift. Uh, Aprajita, how would you say the, the financial wealth of the families? I know Emma came from um, some mm. financial wealth. How, if at all, did that impact this first shift in terms of control? Uh, did she view the, the financial wealth as, again, something that was external, that was imposed upon her, that, that she didn't have control over or could have her own agency over? You know, that's an interesting question, Michael. The way that she actually viewed it was uh, that, she, that she, see, she, she felt it as a tremendous weight. She felt like she had to do really well because her grandfather had done, actually in her case, the wealth comes from her grandmother. The grandmother, her grandmother had done really well. And, her, you know, her grandparents had been such important members of the community and um, and so she felt like the weight of that expectation. So she's like, I have to do. I have to get into the best college. 
I have to get good grades. I have to constantly be proving myself, but I don't, I just don't have control over that. I, my, I hate my math teacher. He is always grading me really harshly. Um, I needed to get extra time and I should, they, they refused to award me extra time. And like all of these things are happening to me. So I can't even, I can't do well. There's no way I can prove that I'm a valuable person. And, and, and if I don't do these things then I will have let my family down and I'm not worthy of receiving this money. That's how she viewed it, which is, I mean, interesting. So, so toxic. Yeah. yeah. So, wow. you know, it speaks to this, it speaks to this um, feeling like, you know, th this idea, like, who am I outside of this money, you know, and what's, and what's possible for me in my life. And th there are other students who feel very trapped by it, right? They feel like I have all of this responsibility. And I, um, there's one, one student who comes from a big family of philanthropists and his parents were like, you know, at some point you're going to take over the family foundation. You're going to be responsible for giving, you know, assigning this money to various important causes. And he, you know, felt really trapped by that, that responsibility. He didn't want that responsibility um, and felt like it was inevitable. It was inescapable. This was his life. And I think that, I think that's the ways that those, those are some of the ways it can manifest. That's really interesting in that particular example, because we see that often with family businesses where there might be the next generation feels that obligation to take over the business and, and they're sort of mm. trapped into that role or identity for themselves. But I hadn't uh, honestly thought about it, at least as it relates to uh, like a family foundation type of situation mm. as well. But I, I, it makes perfect sense to me that people could have that same sort of uh, feeling with that. That was interesting. There's a there's a friend of mine who opened a organization out of Chicago. It's called Shaking the Tree Foundation, mm -hmm. and what they do they deal with affluent families and their complexity and how they all get along generationally. And they actually create plays around these issues. Mm -hmm. So one of the play plays that I saw in Philadelphia was a play around philanthropic philanthropic giving. Grandpa had all the money. The daughter was helping him distribute that money, but Grandpa had different desires for charitable causes that his daughter did. And then the mm -hmm. grandson got involved. He had different causes. So mm -hmm. it was a, but grandpa held the purse strings. So mm -hmm. the, it was, the whole play was around how grandpa and the daughter and the son, the grandson built a strategy around how all three could give to their causes on a unified approach. It was a play written mm -hmm. about it. And people wow. were jumping out of their chairs. It was great to see and say, that's what's happening in my family. So it's interesting mm -hmm. how people go to the extent of creating plays around these issues to help communicate yeah. how people address the problem. And I just thought I'd mm. throw that in there. Fascinating. Uh, fascinating. I would love to see that play. That's, you know, that those are real, the kind of disconnect between values. Th this is really what happens when, when people just you know are thrust into situations and there's there's no time or opportunity or time taken for being intentional about these things and so it's i think it's um i sometimes there are just disagreements but i i do think like you know i think weirdly i think about the royal family in this context as well you know like you're sure. born into this yeah mm -hmm. you're born into this position that's an extreme like level that's like yeah that's like and how do you years. reconcile <laughs> yeah. yeah and how do you reconcile that yeah how do you reconcile the fact that this is your duty in your life and right. if you accept that i mean i guess you could 
do what Prince Harry has done right. and leave. But but if you if you accept that, then then actually the only way to reconcile it is to change your attitude to your circumstances, right? And and to change how you view what's possible for you. Right. Um, and so yeah, so that that shift. But that, you know, I think that that Viktor Frankl has demonstrated that, that shift is possible. Um, regardless of the extremity of the circumstances. And, and I really deep, I deeply believe that. Yeah, absolutely. How about the second shift? What's the, what's the next step? Yeah. So the second shift is uh, from a fixed to growth mindset. Now this is written a lot about in educational research, yeah. but you know, I think achieving that first shift isn't enough because she's going to have to deal with setbacks, right? She has to, but she has to reframe the setback for, you know, that it's just a setup for a comeback. Um, and so, the the shift that we want to see is that our daughters and all young people, everyone realizes that these difficult moments aren't permanent um, and that there are always opportunities for growth. Um, and instead of focusing on achievement, she really should focus on learning and curiosity. So so I think the, an example of that is my student, Jillian. So again, comes from an incredibly affluent family. When she was young, she was diagnosed with a learning disability uh, which had a really big impact on her writing and spelling. Uh, so as a result, she was entering high school. She still wrote in really like very haphazard, like no logical flow, very mistake-filled, grammar-filled sentences that were very confusing. And most importantly, she refused to change. So she was like, look, parents, this is just how it is. Don't even try to change it. It can't be changed. Something wrong with me and stop. Like, don't even try to fix this. Like, this is how it's going to be. Now, <laughs> this is a problem because besides being really affluent, her parents are both writers. And uh, so having their children be writers was incredibly important to them as a really important skill, you know, for their professional lives and just like the joy of writing. Right. Yeah. So she'd worked with several tutors um, and she's like, she's like a grade A charmer. She can charm the pants off anyone. And she's such an engaging conversationalist that she really did not want to have this be something that was corrected because she just felt it was not correctable, that she would charm her tutors and anyone who tried to help her. And then they would tell, start to speak about their own lives and they wouldn't do any work. This happened again and again and again and again. And so the, her parents eventually were sort of loggerheads with her mom in particular, like, you know, and it made the entire family home unpleasant. She has other siblings. Her parents are really very invested in their own professions and, you know, want to live meaningful lives. And it's just taking such a long, so, such a lot of energy. Many of the same issues that Emma had her with her mother, Jillian had with her mother. So fast forward, Jillian makes the shift through our work um, from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. She begins to realize actually that she can improve in her writing. That's actually something possible for you. And then fully crazy things started to happen. So she started the literary magazine at her high school. She started editing her friend's papers. She won the English prize at graduation for, uh, for her writing in general, but particularly for a fantastic close line analysis that she wrote of different translations of the Odyssey. I mean, it's, it goes on and on. I, th I think like probably one of the best moments is that, you know, her mother's a writer constantly writing. And so her mother started using her as an editor for her own writing. And one day I went to the house and her mom was her. like, yeah. And her mom was like, um, Jillian is a powerhouse editor. She has really strong feelings about narrative flow and the Oxford comma and redundancy. And I was like, yeah, she, she could become a professional editor. Like she's that good. 
And, um, you know, so that's what's possible when people make that shift, realizing actually that you're capable of learning and growing in so many different ways and feeling the joy in that learning and growing. And that, that's actually even possible when you do, how, that's how I make my students approach something like the ACT, which is often such a chore and feels like such a burden and they feel so trapped that they have to do it. And actually, it's a great tool for learning problem solving and being able to learn critical reading and all of those kinds of things. It's it, Just approach it as a learning experience and be, be curious about it. Just replace despair and like, you know, a very fatalistic mindset with curiosity and then things really start to change. Um, and and then, of course, like having that change then informs, it's not like a change again that she made one time and there she was. It informed how she approached other challenges in her life. Like, okay, you know what? I, I successfully conquered that. Like, how can, I, how can I transform this thing? How can I make it into a game? How can I be curious about it? And then that just, you know, I, I don't, I think these external factors like grades and colleges and all of those things they mean ultimately they mean very little um but really the joy of learning that sustains you for a lifetime so that that's what's kind of, that's you know that's the second essential shift right yeah that's really interesting too and and i, I remember i attended a, a member of a vistage group and we had a speaker who really focused on having a growth mindset versus a fixed mm. mindset uh, and it was i, I don't think a, an overly complicated process or, or subject matter, I should say, to really understand at the at the very high level, but um, yes, it, very illuminating though at the same time in terms of thinking that way, and, yeah, uh, and that shift, and uh, you know, again, in our with what we do with families, I I wanted to ask whether the socioeconomic uh, circumstances of a family can can contribute to that. Uh, particularly, again, more on maybe with the families that you work with in terms of having that growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. If the if the financial wealth is almost that anchor, uh, like you used, Eric, in terms of being able to have a growth um, mindset from the standpoint of, all right, well, I've already achieved or my family has achieved this level of financial success, so I've I, I now no longer need to really grow. I'm I'm I've, I'm all set. And I didn't know mm. if that played into and in, or if you saw any of that in your work. Yeah, you know, it plays in really interesting ways. So, um, so the, there's a big issue with girls in math and, and in, in the STEM subjects, right? And, um, and I have encountered so many mothers, incredibly affluent mothers of, of teenage daughters and uh, daughters who are in, in early adulthood. And uh, they're like, you know, I was horrible at math and my daughter's horrible at math, but she doesn't need to be. It's okay. She doesn't need to be good at it. It's, it's fine. You know? And, and so it was, uh, it was like, don't even worry about this. Uh, it just doesn't matter. And it's, it's interesting because when I, you know, I worked for a number of years, like as a math teacher and uh, whenever I tell people that, you know, I'm giving them the, this, when I just have to say very little, I'm like, yeah, I teach a lot of what I teach is math. So people are like, oh, I, I don't know math at all. Like, I just don't, I don't know any math. And, and I was always really bad at math. I was thinking like, what if you met an English teacher and you're like, yeah, I you know, a lot of what I teach is reading. And supposing you didn't know how to read, would you be like, yeah, you know, I don't know how to read. Like, pe I think people feel really embarrassed about that, right? Whereas people are not embarrassed by their lack of uh, like right. math you're my, you're my daughters, my, my daughters, I invited them to join Copper Beach. The firm, but both of them said, I don't do math, Dad. 
I said, it's not bad, but that was the, yes. it was like, yeah, it's, it's, I guess, I guess that that's a uh, frequent <laughs> in your yes, world. It's so it's, wow. it's rampant and it's rampant among the parents as well. So what, what's, what's missing from it? You know, we live, we live in such a sort of everything's so utilitarian. Everything has to have like a purpose, right? A, a, a specific output. So I need to learn math in order to do X, Y, Z. Whereas I just don't think enough is talked about what a joy that subject is, because there are very few things in your life that will that will make you have what you know sort of an out of body experience. When you do a when you do a complex math problem, you just sort of leave your awareness of the conscious world because you're you're in it so much. And then at the end, when you solve it, it's so satisfying. And then you realize, like, oh my god, I have a body and I'm in the world. I'm a human being. It's it's so it's such a way. It's it's almost like meditating without doing all of the hard work of meditation because you're able to literally put down all of the things you're worried about and just focus on this problem. So it has tremendous psychological benefits. Um, but a a lot of wealthy families don't think it's even necessary. Like you don't need to do this, or like it's very much like I accept that this is. And this is where my child is. And, you know, she, like Jimmy's more like math oriented, but like Lisa's more, you know, humanities. That's, I, I hear that all the time from, from all parents. So that, that, that goes across any socioeconomic boundary. But, you know, as I, with due respect to Larry Summers, who <laughs> does not agree with this, women, you know, more than capable in STEM subjects, I, I am one of them. Um, so, I, you know, I can, and, and I'm not like, a girl genius, you know, I remember math being difficult for me. And then I remember overcoming that challenge because I made the shift. And then I began to like fall in love with the subject of calculus. So with your with respect to your daughters, they absolutely can do math. Nothing is stopping them. They have the intellect to be able to do it. It's oh, they're, just, they're both very smart. Yeah, they're both very smart. Uh, of course, I have no doubt about that, John. I have no doubt about that, right? And so, <laughs> but so, just, I don't like, do math. It's great. Yeah, no, it's, it's sort of like, why would we limit ourselves? And also, like, we don't need to do it for a particular reason. We can do it just for the joy of doing it. And I, I remember when I was young, my brother had this conversation with me. I like failed a math test when I was very young. Uh, in, in at the beginning of high school, I failed a math test. And he's like, look, I'm going to break this down for you. In our family, we speak three languages. We speak Hindi, our mother tongue from India. We speak English and we speak mathematics. I don't care what you do with your life. You are always going to speak this language. And it was explained to me in those terms. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm just always going to speak this language. And then I, and then I just approached it very differently. So, so in, in, in staying in a fixed mindset, we're actually really like depriving our daughters and our young, the young people in our lives of a full, a full human experience of the curiosity of learning, the joy of being able to solve a problem. And those are really transferable skills because, you know, when you're an, an, an inheritor of vast wealth and, and for everyone in this world, but in that instance, there's a lot of problem solving that's involved. There are a lot of decisions that you have to make about your family and what you want and how you want to shape that money. And that is, that is you know, it's a very similar kind of problem solving. And so, you know, why should we not embrace that? I think it has enormous impacts. Yeah, actually, so, it was my, it's Michael's fault because both of my daughters said, listen, we're going to rely on Michael. He's, he's, he's the golden <laughs> child. That's what, that's, that's what they call We rely on Michael. And, and it, I can see how they could say that because there's a yeah. trust in what we do here at Copper Beach from my daughter's standpoint. And so yeah. I don't have to worry about that. I've got my brother yeah. who's, who's an attorney. He's very smart. He knows math. 
because he runs a he runs a company with my dad, so I can rely on him. So, so, so I guess it's easier to let that go. But I, I see your point. Yeah, but you know what? What happens if God forbid something should happen to Michael or you or forget about even anything catastrophizing oh, like that, right? It's it's like for for their own sake, and I wonder I wonder if they have daughters. Like, are they? You know that there's often like something that's transmitted directly to girl children from their mothers. Like, so it's it's it really needs to be. I think it's actually very um, very important. I, I'm so very happy that 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 you you all have a supportive family. But actually, there are a lot of people who don't have that. And um, and even, and it's sort of regardless of whether you have it or not. I think it's really really important. And that's actually one of the central issues of wealth, which is like, I don't need to know about this because I, uh, because I, you know, the coffers right, are filled right. yeah, sorry, and actually, yeah, yeah. yeah, the, the, what you lose in that speaks to, speaks directly to um, your sense of yourself, your sense of what's capable for yourself and then your own value outside of your wealth, which is one of the main corrupting uh facets of of money which is like i have no value outside of this and this is one way to develop that one way that has no often no measurable outcomes like you know but but it's there it's for you and it it's it's it feeds you for a lifetime yeah absolutely well let's uh let's move on to shift number three if we can yeah yes so the third shift is in motivation and this is something that i think no, essentially, no person on this planet is immune to, but um, but it's exacerbated in these wealthy communities. So we want our young people and want want our daughters to to make a shift from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation. So you know, shifts shifts in uh, control and mindset aren't enough because you're gonna once you make those shifts, you're, you're um, or make those shifts in 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 a, in a small instance. You're going to be faced with this world that we are in that's constant comparison with others. So we talked about the toxicity of social media. That's like, you know, that's that's comparison on steroids. Um, and so as a result, you have these incredibly talented, beautiful, wonderful young girls um, who have access to a lot of resources who feel like they're failures. It's it's a travesty. And so we need to yep. give them a, a new measuring stick, right? And so before they're going to feel like my worth is in the college I go to, for example, right? My worth is in the grades I get. My worth is in the approval I receive from other people. And 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 then you're constantly going to focus on short-term rewards. Like someone told me I did a good job um, or, you know, I, I went, I got into this Ivy League or I won this prize, et cetera, right? And, and those have increased increasingly diminishing returns right they're not gonna they're not gonna sustain you for very long um and the shift we want them to make is to be propelled by their own internal hunger for learning and for growth and for development and experiencing the joy in that even when no one's looking right and so so that's embodied in my student rachel so again not her not her real name so she again comes from an incredibly wealthy background she was a really conscientious student, like was really important for her to get great grades. And she got really excellent grades in college, uh, sorry, in, in high school, but she did not go to a very, she went to a, um, she went to an, a, a prep school, but was not at one of those elite, really competitive prep schools. And so she, uh, she didn't get into her first choice college, which was this elite, really, really elite Ivy League university. 
So she basically kicking and screaming went to a small liberal arts college instead. And everyone in her orbit was concerned that she was going to drop out when she very reluctantly went to went there. And it was it was an extreme situation. She selected her courses. So she would be there for the minimum possible time. She selected all of her courses. So she would only have classes from Tuesday to Thursday. And then in between that, she would fly back home. So, hmm. you know, her, her dad was like, you're flying, but you're taking two, you know, cross country, not cross country, but essentially cross country flights. Um, like, you know, that's just a lot, right? So she would fly back home and she um, didn't want to be there. She didn't want to engage with anyone. And everyone was afraid that she was going to drop out. And the beginning of her freshman year, I agreed. It was like, okay, I will support you for a transfer application. She begged me to support her for this transfer application. So it's like, okay, we can apply. However, that has to be accompanied by exactly this shift that you have to start being motivated by these other things, right? That, that it can't be like that you are valueless because you did not get into this Ivy League university of your choice. So that she had to apply at the very beginning of her freshman year for a, for a sophomore year transfer. So she applied when she was still like really unhappy at the college she was at. And then through the work that we did that fall and into the spring, she made this shift. She, she, instead of being motivated by like the the seal of approval by this elite institution and being able to t- you know wear that that day every every spring where you wear the the college that you got accepted to sweatshirt to school and then and feeling like I'm I'm worth nothing because I am not going to this elite college in fact on that day she refused to wear she refused to wear her college's sweatshirt we were all you know we were all trying to convince her but she she refused because she was so ashamed she gets to college. All right, she's really unhappy, and then she makes this shift, as a, as I said. And the shift was amazing. She uh, began to get really involved in her classes. She developed really important relationships with her professors. Instead of calling her mother every day or every hour at one point, really, and I'm not exaggerating about that. It was like, I hate you. You've um, you didn't send me to a better school. That's why I didn't get into my first choice college. Like this is your fault. This is faulty genetics that I didn't do well in math and blah. I mean, it was endless. It was endless, and it was, you know, completely not based on on any actual data or or logic. That transformed when she made that shift and began to be motivated by you know the inner compass the calls to her mother would be like mom did you have you read house of mirth i want to discuss it with you edith wharton talks about really complex um issues related to you know wealthy women who come women who come from very wealthy societies in 1800s new york you know, I read this article, I want to discuss it. What were your experiences? Like, read my essay. It was just amazing. So then in the spring, she was hears back from her, this Ivy League institution, and she has gained acceptance into that institution. And she was more than content to stay where she was. And That's that probably, kind probably. of shift yeah. is possible. Yeah, where she was like, oh, I don't need, I don't need this seal of approval. Actually, like love of learning is its own reward. I can... You know, back to back to Victor Frankl. I can choose how I respond. You know, I can choose how I respond, and so that is this key third shift that's really vital and 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 possible and joyous to experience. There's such a joy. You know, it's like <laughs> got a call from her being like, "Oh my god, did I tell you I already love college now?" And I was like, I'm sorry, what? That's great. <laughs> so, she's like, I forgot to tell you, I really love it now. And I was like, 
wow, if it, you know, I, I shed some tears when she said that. It was amazing to see that transformation. And, and I was like, you have to remember this because you are not your circumstances. You are not your biography. You are not the college you went to. You actually have infinite worth outside of these things. So, and that, that's, that's something that every young person, every person needs to hear. Certainly, certainly people in these extreme situations of extreme wealth where value gets so warped certainly need to hear it and, and internalize it. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. All right, the, the, the last shift. This is uh, the last we could shift. Probably, yeah, we could probably talk about each one of these. I think could be its own podcast. Uh, uh, career, no, yeah, yes. Yeah. So the last shift is really, uh, I think, the, the key one. And that's that's transformation, right? So from DIY, doing it yourself to mentored success. So it is really difficult to achieve these shifts alone, right? And actually, young people need a, a trusted third voice, right? Someone who isn't a parent or an institutional professional, like a teacher or a therapist. You need someone who's like a near peer, someone you can trust uh, to help guide you through these shifts. And so before, um, it's like you feel like I have to come up with all these answers myself. And actually, mother parents feel this too, right? It, there is no guide for how to par parent, and often parents feel so exasperated, like I have to come up with these shifts my, ourselves, like I have to come up with the answer myself um, to actually seeking help. And I, I'm an embodiment of that. I know, um, John, you are a mentor. Michael, I know you've received mentorship, both peer mentorship and also mm -hmm. from your dad. Um, and, and John, didn't you say that you also have had, you also had mentors, is that yes, correct? Yes, I have. Yep. A few of them. So you for, yeah, for and so what? What kind of impact did they have in your life? It was it, it was unbelievable because it, yeah. it, it led me where I am today. At least two of them, yeah. Uh, yeah, that guided me into this profession the right way, and he was way ahead of his time. Didn't quite mm. understand it back then, but looking back, it was the best thing I ever did was listen to this gentleman. Oh, uh, so that's, that's one as, as far as you know, business wise. Um, mm. I grew up without a father. Um, mm. so my mom remarried my stepdad, who's kind of like a mentor to me as well. He, he mm. kept it real simple, understood the, mm. the rules of the road. He said to me, I can't, I can't replace your father. I'll be mm. your best friend. I'll be a second father as, as much as you need me. He was that type mm. of type of a guy. So he, he calmed things down because it was hard growing up without a father or why we married. Mm. We were cautious. Can you imagine that set of yes. kids not being cautious? Who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. who, who, who's taking my mom? It was one of those yeah. times. All four, yeah. all four of us had that same feeling. Turned out and to be a, a wonderful decision in all parties. Uh, so that so those are the two. But I, I've been fortunate uh, in, in my life, and I, I don't I don't take that lightly. Many are not as fortunate as I have been with that kind of a background. Growing up with mm. a father, and I tell the story all the time. My mother had four of us in twenty five months. Oh my goodness! Our identical twin, premature, seven months previous, and my brother is ten months older. And my sister was ten months younger. Oh so not God. only do we grow up without a father, we were all grew up at the same time, at, wow. for the same. You know, all got our licenses at the same time. All went to college at the same time. Wow. It was a madness. And my mother had a tremendous strength in her uh, that I look back and say, I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she figured it out, yeah. but she was a very bright, 
She was a registered nurse. She was a uh, very, very smart woman, had her master's in nursing. She was an instructor, a teacher. So she had all the skills, but but she did it on her own until she married my stepdad, wow. which was great. But so he, both her, my mom and my father were two of my leading. Wow. And what a good decision she made for you guys. She clearly made a really good decision in her choice of partner. She know? asked permission. She did. Is it okay? Wow. Yeah, and, and I said, wow. I said, I said, well, how much money are you gonna give us? <laughs> was, I'm just kidding. It was, I'm just kidding. It was uh, no, we all were on the same page. We all we all yeah. met him a few times, and we saw the the smile on his face, and he was uh, turned out to be a, a oh. great guy. And the other part of the story is they had my younger brother Anthony, who is pretty much an older child. My mom was 43 mm. when she had him, mm. and uh, he grew up, um, and they both died of cancer two months apart from each other. Uh, in 1982, uh, excuse me, eight months apart from each other. And I had to raise my younger brother with my wife. Wow. The good news is he went to MIT and he's now at Juilliard as, as a professor. So, so he's, you know, he's, he's it, done really he ended up in just, He just did real good. <laughs> he did a fun job, but it could have gone wow. the other way, but he was very, very smart, very mature and wow. understood the circumstances. I, mean, I didn't mean to take away from your, your, your conversation, but it, but you look at how you, in your life and, and your mentors and people that led you, sometimes you miss it, but you think, if you go, put, go back and think about it, you find out who they were. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it looks like you were also a mentor to your brother and, and your stepfather was a mentor to you. Yep. And I so. Yeah. And I think that it's often it's difficult to receive advice from our parents. Am I right, Michael? <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I'm learning yeah. that I'm learning that firsthand yeah, on the I, other side I, of the, both as, the yes, as a father and as <laughs> yeah. a son, right? Yeah. yeah. But, no, I've been but lucky I with, think, I've been looking at Michael's point too, because he he's a great G two player here with with, mm. with with the company. And as yeah. I said many times, we've been together 14 years, never had an argument other than some wow. political stuff. You know, that is um that's rare. That that is that is rare, yeah, especially with especially with people who who work so closely together. Um, but you know, I think that mentorship it, it's been invaluable in my life. You know, I um, I I really was uh, struggling with a lot of things, and I have a mentor, continued mentor, and I've always sought out mentorship. And the data is clear; it just takes one relationship. It just takes one relationship, and not just not just. Um, as a young person, but even as a parent, I'm not, I'm not just a mentor for my students, but I'm a mentor for the parents I work with and I'm younger than all of them. Um, and so, you know, they have a lot of expertise in many areas that I don't, but in this one area, you know, they solicit my advice and I guide them. And so you don't have to do it alone. There's no guidebook for parenting. And we live in an age where like, you know, we've got CEOs of fortune 500 companies having, uh, mentors and, and coaches, like who needs it more than a person who's negotiating adolescence in the middle of a pandemic or young adulthood right now in this really complicated moment in our lives? So it, you know, I think, I think it is very important for me that this isn't just, um, isn't just like my talking and, and people listening, but I actually really want to, a, a call to action for the for our listeners, you know, you're you're going to be in one or two, one of two categories. If you're a listener, you're either um, this is impacting someone directly in your life, like your child, um, or your younger sister, your niece, or 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 it's happening to someone you know in your network. That is, there's there's an absolute fact, and so I think um, you know we need to really encourage 
people who are negotiating this or people we know who are negotiating this ask questions because they may, they may not, we know, may not even know that they're negotiating this because there's such shame associated with it. And yeah, you know, let's act. I, I work with very few people um, every year, but I, uh, I want to help as many people as I can. So even if I can't work with people directly, um, I am a, a resource and your listeners can access, but can book a call with me. Um, so my, my sort of process is that I have an initial um, critical thinking download call where I, I, I ask the, the people who have these presenting problems with their child, mostly it's their child, to think through what's going on. And actually we unearth several other problems that are really like the root causes. Um, then I, then I create a development plan that involves a lot of resources and, uh, you know, my diagnosis and suggestions for next steps. And I either recommend people I trust, you know, really, and I have very high standards. So I have therapists I work with, other educational consultants, or if I think there's an opportunity for us to work together, then I, uh, then I propose that as well. So, you know, it's very easy to book a call with me. Um, you can access me on my website. It's just my name. It's aprajita, A-P-R-A-J-I-T-A.com. And I would really encourage your listeners to act. And there are other coaches. And basically, if you take nothing else away from this, please remember, you don't have to do this alone. In fact, you shouldn't. It, it's it's going to be much more successful if you s- seek out help. Yeah, I, I would uh, 100% agree. And, and, and uh, Aprajita, unfortunately, I think we're approaching the ends of, of our time here, but I mm. really wanted to thank you again. Um, and, and I can thank you a bunch more times. I'm sure mm, I, I you deserve it. Uh, this has been great. And, and thank you so much for being a part of this. I think the messaging that you've delivered over the last two podcasts is something that uh, I know our listeners will love to hear. And um, hopefully some, some new listeners will, will hear that as well. And, and I also thank you for describing your process and how people can get in touch with you. Cause that was one thing I was going to ask you. So I'm glad you, mm. you beat me to that punch. Um, but thank you so much for being here. This has been great. Thank you. So it's such a pleasure. Uh, I have a renewed sense of the importance of this work and um, you know, I hope that people seek help if they need it. And thank you. F- thank you for what you guys do. Because oh, I it's know our pleasure. You- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Thanks. Again, so thank you, Eric. Been- Oh, absolutely. Thank you. This has been another wonderful podcast. I want to make sure that we uh, get your website in the, the show notes so that there's a link there that people can click and go directly to it um, to check that out. Um, I think that would be very helpful, and I appreciate the offer. John and Michael, thank you so much for facilitating this and bringing her on again. What, what a great set of podcasts. Uh, very powerful stuff. So thank you. And of course, our last thank you is for you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Paris. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review because this actually does help other people find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. 
The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Copper Beach is not affiliated with American Portfolios Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolios Advisors, Inc. Securities offered through American Portfolio Financial Services, Inc., a member of FINRA SIPC, Investment Advisory and Financial Planning Services offered through American Portfolio Advisors, Inc., an SCC Registered Investment Advisor. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice. Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. Investments are not guaranteed, involve risk, and may result in a loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Investments are not suitable for all types of investors. Copper Beach is an unaffiliated entity of American Portfolios Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolios Advisors, Inc. Any opinion expressed in this forum is not the opinions of American Portfolio Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolio Advisors, Inc. and have not been reviewed by the firm for completeness or accuracy.